This is the official Sasta podcast brought to you by me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC at H Stebbings on Snapchat and the main man, Jason Lemkin, who you can find on Twitter at Jason LK because he's not quite cool enough to be on Snapchat despite my efforts. Now, today's show was one of my favourites ever to record. I was pre-warned by some of his investors that he was super fun and had some awesome hobbies that we should chat about, but the show far surpassed expectations on fun and really was such a pleasure. So joining me today, I'm thrilled to welcome Michael Litt, founder and CEO at Vidyard, the video intelligence platform that allows you to create, measure and strengthen engagement of your video content. And they are based in Canada and have raised from the likes of Battery Ventures, Bessemer, Softech, Salesforce Ventures, some incredible names there and the list goes on. But I'd like to say a huge thanks to Matt Garrett at Salesforce Ventures for making the intro, without which the show would not have been possible. However, it's now time for me to hand over the mic to the main man, Michael Litt, founder and CEO at Vidyard. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Michael, absolutely fantastic to have you on the official Sasta podcast. Firstly, thanks to Matt at Salesforce for making the intro, but also thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, I'd love to kick off proceedings today by hearing a bit about you and, and your story with Vidyard. So what was the aha moment and the origin story for the founding of Vidyard? I'll try to give you the, uh, the non-novel edition of that. Uh, I did my undergrad at the University of Waterloo. Uh, that's in uh, Ontario, Canada. There's a really awesome co-op program whereby you spend four months in school and four months working all the way through until you graduate. So you get a ton of work experience. And frankly, what I pulled away from that was that I did not want to work for anyone and specifically for a big company once I graduated. And that's such a valuable thing to ultimately take away from your undergraduate career because a lot of people just don't get that. I met my co-founder in undergrad. He was in my class. His name is Devin Galloway. And Devin is brilliant. He was the kind of guy that was taken out of standard curriculum when he was young and allowed to play chess competitively until grade nine because he could do great math when he was like 10 years old. You know, we became friends and we did school projects together. And one of the cool things about the degree we did, uh, it's called systems design engineering, is every single term you do a kind of like a research project and you have to commercialize technology to some degree. So make it marketable, make it presentable, and solve a very specific problem. We had an opportunity to work together. We had an opportunity to work in industry together. We had an opportunity to day trade together. We just became good buddies and, and shared really, really creative ideas. So through undergrad, I had started a few companies, some successful, um, some failures, nothing nearly as big as Vidyard. Um, one of the you know biggest successes I had was with a blog called PhoneRec, uh, where I took apart um, semiconductors or sorry, phones and published the reference designs um, and the, the block diagrams and showed what was almost from, from a semiconductor perspective. I ended up selling that uh, as a marketing tool for a semiconductor manufacturer, had a little bit of success. I was in the Valley working at this company and Devin actually flew out to drive back from California to Waterloo with me uh, because I had driven out there at the beginning of my term in my car. And so when you spend, you know, 18 hours a day over the span of two, three, four days in a car together, you run out of stuff to talk about pretty quickly. You know, those close confines um, and, and, you know, road trips are, I think, really good for this, really do force you out of your comfort zone and really let you, you know, learn somebody really well. And so Devin and I started hashing around ideas. We realized we wanted to do something once we graduated. And we realized via the co-op program and the companies we worked at 
there was an opportunity in this realm of video production. Video was still difficult at the time. There wasn't that many companies that were really good at it. We want to do animated videos so we could be um, geographically unconstrained. Uh, and we knew we could probably contact some of our previous job or previous uh, bosses to get jobs and essentially sell contracts. And so we took a little bit of that money that I had made from that acquisition and we started that company. And we were going into our final year university, one more co-op term. Um, we started making videos. We started pitching businesses on it. Um, and we set ourselves a milestone whereby if we were to make $50,000 from this business in the span of four months, and this was the four months leading up to Christmas, we called it Project Christmas, we would ultimately stop looking for jobs uh, outside of school and we would go full-time and get fully committed to this thing as what we were going to do once we graduated. And so on Christmas Eve 2010, Devin calls me up. You know, we're at like $42,000. We're so close. We might have made the decision to stick it out anyways, but we were pretty firm on that 50K. And he closed the deal with a company in Silicon Valley called Adkemi for like 12 grand. And it pushed us just over that threshold. You know, we had kind of hustled together. We pushed it to that point. And we realized if we could make 50 in four months, you know, including growth and stuff like that, there's only two of us and our margins were pretty good. You know, we could potentially live happily ever after and run this thing as a lifestyle business, hire animators and, and build something together. And so going into kind of the new year, 2011, we had a shot at another undergraduate thesis project. And this one was our very last one. And so we thought, let's build some technology that's related to this video production company, which we called Redwoods Media. And this technology was a video hosting platform, specifically because every time we made a video, customers would say, how do we put it on our website? And so we built a very simple embeddable player that they could use, that they could brand, that didn't function as an outbound link to YouTube or Vimeo or whatever else existed at the time. And we realized we could sell that for 50 bucks a month and all of a sudden have a SaaS component to this video production company. And that recurring revenue is a really sweet thing because we can say, okay, we're going to be able to do a thousand of these projects at some point and everybody's going to pay us 50 bucks a month. That's $50,000 per month. We're going to have this recurring revenue stream, you know, approaching a million dollars per year. That sounds pretty good. Maybe we can add more features and charge more than 50 a month. Maybe we get to a thousand a month. And we started looking at, you know, the SaaS world and realized there was pretty massive opportunities. How did you establish so, a pricing model in the early days? It was just what people were willing to pay. And so the customer would say, how, do I, how am I going to put this on my website? I don't really know. And we'd say, oh, here's an embed code. This is a player. Because it's expensive to host and play video, we're going to charge you X dollars per month. Sometimes I'd say 250 Sometimes I'd say 500 It really depended on the scale of the project. And the more somebody spent with us to produce the video, the more they'd be willing to spend to host and manage the asset because it was just more valuable to them. So... That's kind of when we started to learn about value-based pricing, which I think is something that a lot of founders struggle with early on, largely because they're not talking to enough customers. So, so how do you approach value-based pricing then? Is it a pure customer validation thing for you where you speak to X number of customers? And then how many customers is enough, do you think? That's a great question. So, uh, you know, fast forward, I think, so how do I approach value-based pricing today is very different than I did back then. Um, and maybe for the purpose of the podcast, it makes sense to kind of rewind back to the early days. Um, when we finally uh, shut the doors on the video production business, what, what ultimately happened is, I'll just finish that story because I think it's relevant, is uh, we realized we could build an analytics platform on top of the video player. And that data would help us make better videos. And then we could go to a customer and say, hey, we guarantee that 60% of your audience is going to finish the video we produce. And if not 
we will reproduce that video until that metric is true. And we could sell that for a higher price. And then the customer would say, well, how do you know that people are watching the video? And you say, oh, we have this analytics platform and here's the data. And they say, holy shit, I would love this data on all the other videos I have on my website. And that's when we realized there was an opportunity to actually build a video analytics platform and build some intrinsic value beyond just video hosting and beyond video creation. And that's when we kind of shuttered things and became a SaaS platform specifically focused on video analytics. We went to Y Combinator in the summer of 2011. PG called us YouTube for business. And so to sell that technology, we had the customers that we had made videos for. But what I did was we built a crawler that scanned the DMOS for every single company that had a video embedded on its homepage. And we ended up with like 85,000 accounts. And then we worked with Odesk to find the contacts inside of those companies, primarily in marketing. And I had a list of 85,000 users, potential users. We had no pricing at the time. We had people paying us 50, 250. We had somebody paying us $500 per month. So I started calling into these businesses, just asking them questions about, you know, how many videos do you have? Do you understand who's watching those videos? How much would this be worth to you if you could understand? Is video a black box? Do you even care about this technology? We're validating the market. But every once in a while, a customer would say, oh my God, this is amazing. And they'd go on this huge tangent. I said, okay, you have a video production budget in the year of what? Maybe it's $100,000. Maybe it's $25,000. Okay, so you spend 25 grand on videos per year. You have no idea how they're performing. What is it worth to you? Is it worth 10%? Is it worth 100% of that contract? Understand if they're valuable. Surprisingly enough, a lot of companies were willing to spend up to 50% of their video production budget understanding whether or not that investment was actually doing something for them. Because this was in the beginning of CMOs becoming data-focused and having tools that they could use to actually justify their existence. And so that's kind of how we did value-based pricing in the very beginning of time. Um, And it was just with huge volumes of conversations. And during that period, which was Y Combinator in the full year after, I was doing in the area of 100 and 150 calls per day. And so I would just get so much data. And then in the end of, in the end of it all, it just became instinctually based. And, and how does that compare then to the value-based pricing mentality that you have now? Yeah, so now we have, I mean, we have a target. We've got so much data. We've got a bunch of customers. We also continually introduce new features and aspects to the platform to expand our share of wallet, but also to expand our TAM. You know, value-based pricing is kind of a win-loss analysis to some degree. You know, if, if companies are choosing a competitor because it's cheaper, then the analysis has to become, is there a technology gap or is this thing actually just commoditized to the extent that people are willing to spend less for it for a potentially um, sacrificed experience with a, with a worse technology? And there's always this discussion. And so our pricing model is always essentially in flux. And I think this is true for all SaaS businesses. I mean, I've seen Salesforce licenses fluctuate intrinsically. Um, Frankly, most of the time, the price is just going up. And that's obviously to expand share of wallet inside of accounts and to account for inflation, et cetera. But I think it's a really dynamic practice. Um, And the way we do that now internally is by analyzing win-loss if we're losing, who are we losing to? Fortunately, in our market, there's really no clear competition. And so if we're losing, it might be because of lack of budget. If it's because of lack of budget, what is the budget? Is there a reduced package that we can give to the customer to get them in the door and get them using it to see the value of it? And so we're constantly introducing new tiers. And, and recently, we went from you know targeting only businesses that were doing $100 million and more in revenue per year. And we started focusing on SMEs with a 
you know, slightly reduced functionality package, but understanding that these small businesses now have the exact same needs of these larger ones. And so we introduced a completely new tier of pricing um, that has had a massive impact on the business. How do you assess that different pricing then? Because obviously the larger tickets take much longer to put through the, get through the door, uh, and there's a lot more red tape and preparation for them compared to the SMEs with the smaller tickets. So, So how do you view that differentiation between the larger and the bigger tickets and what's worth your time? Yeah, so you know we're big enough now that we have kind of four segments in the sales organization. There's SME, mid-market, large enterprise, and key accounts. Key accounts are big businesses, things like Microsoft, Salesforce, IBM, SAP, McKesson, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world that have very complex requirements from both the platform uh, and our team in terms of communication, internal selling, time frame, et cetera. And so we have a, a group inside the company that really just focuses on those opportunities. You know, they have a very focused number of accounts. There's not, you know, 85,000, there's maybe 50 that they're really spending a lot of time getting into understanding the demands of the company and ultimately creating that deal. And those are bigger ticket items because the uh, technology is more complex and there's just way more time involved. There's more users, there's more content. It just is, is more of everything. So our pricing model is actually pretty linear in the grand scheme of things. If you were to factor in the amount of time it required us to get a deal, the amount of technology that was being used, the amount of bandwidth that was consumed and all the aspects of our platform, which increase our price. And you were to look at that in an enterprise versus a 10-person company, and you were just to create a linear line that connected the dots in terms of the size of those two businesses, our pricing would kind of fall along that line accordingly. And with such a wide customer base, would you recommend now, obviously, Vidyard being a a large company with, as you said, extensive clients, would you recommend for, for companies starting up that they focus very much on one particular segment and broaden as they grow? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think if you are a startup focused on enterprise sales, unless you have a background in enterprise sales or someone that, you know, understands what it is to be at a startup and is just a hustler and can get out there and leverage the Rolodex and get enterprise sales done, you will not survive because there will not be the metrics. There won't be any of the vanity metrics or, you know, the unit economics um, designed to help you justify to an investor why they should ultimately support your business if that's the path you ultimately want to go. So, you know, I think early on, and I'm sure you've seen this across many companies you've interviewed, it's really important to have a large volume of people using your software ultimately giving you feedback because that feedback helps you build better software. It helps you build better marketing messaging. It ultimately helps you scale and also distributes your risk unless you have massive churn rates. Would you advocate then for a freemium pricing model then to get that initial data and to stop kind of pricing barriers to entry? Yeah, I think, you know, freemium is an interesting one because, uh, you know, we're in the process of, of bringing a free product to market as part of a go-to-market strategy to really kick up that, that flywheel model that we've ultimately never really had. The thing with freemium is it's very difficult to build an organization that can ultimately support a large enterprise or a mid-market company if you start with a freemium model because you're going to have a lot of tire kickers, there's going to be a lot of churn, there's going to be a huge percentage of users that never actually convert to paid customers but are still going to have support requirements, are still going to want to call and talk to you, and are still going to want to use your time. And you know, I think there's some type of inverse proportionality to some extent, and maybe it's, it looks like a bit of a bathtub in that the less people pay for your software, 
up to free, the more time they actually need to spend with you um, and the more time they're justified because people are either spending time or money with your software. And I think the, the line between those things are is, is pretty gray and pretty limited. So, you know, I always recommend companies not start with freemium unless it truly is just a small feature, just a small enhancement and something that, you know, cannot cross that gray line barrier between free and 10 or $15 per month. If it's a platform, if it has something complex, such as like a video analytics service, I highly recommend, you know, people charge for that because unless you charge for it, you're not going to get the feedback required to continuously innovate and, and build a broader platform and a successful company behind it. How do you assess free trials then? I mean, obviously very different to freemium. Would you always advocate for free trials? Yeah, I think, I think free trials are important uh, as a lead gen tactic. Um, you know, people are going to come to your website. They're going to stand on your front door and the door is unlocked. And your door either looks like a big spooky house at Halloween that as a kid you want to avoid because somebody's going to pop out and scare the shit out of you and try to sell you something. (laughs) And that's, you know, the standard sales process. Or there's like a little cute pug standing in the doorway with a bow on his neck and the, you know, the the door is open and there's a a perfectly staged bowl of onions on the counter and you're going to go in and you're going to hang out with the pug and you're going to pick up an onion. And I don't know why I'm saying onions. I'm I'm staging a house right now. And like the recommendation from the real estate agent was a bowl of onions, which I thought was ridiculous. (laughs) Anyways, um, so they're going to come in and, and have this awesome experience. And so that's what the free trial creates because, you know, as a millennial, uh, and as the next generation comes along, I think there's less of an inclination to want to talk to somebody, to want to pick up the phone. And as these millennial buyers enter the market, you have to be accommodating to their needs. And so a free trial is a way of letting them use your software, letting them in the house, letting them look around, and then maybe asking them if they want to talk to you or at least giving them the option to talk to you after they've had that experience. Now, obviously, you need to make sure that free trial experience delivers a ton of value up front and is really well designed um, and contrived to a point that they do get that value. But I highly recommend the free trial for that purpose. But again, too soon in your process and, you know, free trial users and tire kickers uh, can be a massive distraction because the vast majority of them will never open their wallets and pay for your software. Um, And very early on, you know, when you launch on a product hunt or a hacker news or something along those lines, it could be competitors, it could be other hackers. It's, you know, people that ultimately could completely distract you and, and never allow you to build something of value. And I'd love to dive into a quick fire round, uh, 60 seconds faster. So I say a statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? Uh, that sounds good. Do you know what I love the way? I love the way we had a set of questions and we haven't asked one of them. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty blabby today. I don't know. I, I had a breakfast meeting this morning and I went to the wrong location and then I went to the another long, wrong location and my whole day has just been like no, it's great. a series of unfortunate events. So. I, I lo- love a natural <laughs> conversation anyway 60 seconds you ready to go yeah i am productivity hacks and tactics what are yours oh have a bath every morning uh that's a big one for me a bath yeah i sit in too much oh it's it's amazing no it's uh well fuck i pardon my french uh i wake up in the morning and (laughs) you know i am looking down the day i'm looking down the week my heart is going i like leap out of bed of all the things i need to do and having a bath forces me to uh, what I call CTFO, which stands for chill the fuck out, and just contemplate the day, think about things, um, and relax myself. Because I find when I'm relaxed, I'm much more productive, I'm more creative, I'm more balanced. And then uh, my lovely wife, who's a part of this productivity hack as well, uh, she helps me out in the morning. Uh, she works from home, and so she has 
you know, a bit more flexibility in her schedule, she makes us both a coffee and that coffee contains uh, a tablespoon of grass-fed butter and a tablespoon of MCT oil. Um, and that is kind of my quick kick meal. There's calories in it, gets me going and, and helps me kind of focus some of the things I thought about in the tub. And then the last thing, uh, which we were talking about before the interview is, you know, a productivity hack is, is if you have a partner in your life, that person needs to be like willing to support you and love you and care for you and vice versa until the day you die. Because ultimately that partnership is not nearly as finite as whatever you're working on right now. You know, they see that vision and they know that supporting you in the short term is going to maybe benefit your relationship in the long term. And I've had bad relationships before that were selfishly motivated, et cetera, et cetera. And that is such a distraction from productive and balanced work. So those would be my my three productivity hacks. That would be the best <laughs> answer I've ever had for productivity hack. Well done. Um, really Thanks, man. Uh, Appreciate so, it. Now I've got one from Stephanie Palmieri, an investor. Uh, apparently yeah. you have a bunch of cool hobbies. Talk to me. What are they? <laughs> oh, man. I, have, I guess I do have some hobbies. Uh, I'm really into anything on four wheels. I have two old cars that I regularly take to the track and I, and I drive them as hard as I can. And I feel like I'm in Le Mans and I'm a race car driver. And in that moment, I think about nothing other than shuffling, you know, those four wheels around the circuit as fast as is humanly possible. And it's, it's a strange hobby. And when I abstract it and look at it, I'm like, why do I love this? I don't really know, but I'm really into it. Um, I also race carts uh, so these, these little machines, they do about 120 kilometers per hour. It's wheel to wheel. You do two G's around a corner and, uh, you know, it's a good group of guys that, that I do that with. And it's just, it's more like a club environment. It's an extreme sport. I, I love that. And I think it was part of, it partly came from when I was in high school, I was big into freestyle skiing and that was, you know, big air, um, slope style competitions, never really got into half pipe. And I loved competing in high school. I was in track and then and uh, later in high school, I did this freestyle skiing stuff, and, and I missed that, and my body is not really capable of doing what I did when I was in high school anymore. Um, and, you know, I just can't really risk to land on my head and break my neck. So now I've, as a lot of skiers who started in freestyle did, I've kind of translated into big mountain backcountry skiing. So um, once or twice a year, I, I go with a group of CEOs um, out west to a place called Bald Place Lodge, and, you know, it's remote, it's helicopter access only, and we go get lost in the backcountry and try to avoid creek holes and tree wells and that type of thing, but ski some powder and just have a, uh, have a really great time. So those are kind of my, my two primary hobbies today. It's a pretty, um, it's pretty, I do like, pretty great array of hobbies. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, there's always like, there's like rock climbing and, you know, I went fishing last weekend. I, I, I think I'm just generally active in, in the outdoors and things that include both, um, you know, high rates of speed and, and generally to our investors chagrin elements of risk. I think this is why they have a, a key man policy on me. And then hit me, fave SaaS material. This could be blog, podcast, book. Uh, what's your favorites reading wise? Despite the fact that my wife is a, is a professional writer, I am not a huge reader of self-help books. If I'm going to sit down and read, I'd rather read something that's like fiction and completely distracts me and lets my like subconscious work through a problem. But I do find there are some amazing resources out there. Obviously, Saster uh, is something that gets constantly referenced through the company um, that I use to kind of benchmark aspects of ourselves against other businesses. Uh, Tom Tungus does a phenomenal job of delivering on those metrics. I always break down his S1s and compare our growth rates and our you know, sales and marketing spend ratios across other companies. 
a story in a book that actually really gripped me early on was uh, Benioff's book, Behind the Cloud. You know, I think that is a phenomenal story that is, to some extent, very, ideally very honest about what it was like to start that business. And they are still, to this day, one of the fastest growing SaaS companies. I mean, they invented Flywheel. They disrupted an industry. They're a behemoth. And yes, they're a very different company today. But what Mark and and the crew did early on is something that a lot of companies, I think, can think about and, and, and replicate. Um, and then otherwise, you know, I, I really try to learn as much as possible from peers and, and I look to people that are a few steps ahead of me. Who do you look, look up to, admire, look to emulate? Yeah, so I'm fortunate enough in that uh, Byron Dieter is on my board of directors. Love and Byron. Yeah, Byron is like the SaaS mothership. He, I mean, <laughs> if one of, one of our Canadian investors... Um, like did a quick analysis of his portfolio and they're like, they think that Byron's returns on SaaS companies IPOing have netted uh, more IRR than the entire Canadian venture capital industry combined since inception, <laughs> which I mean, we're a small company, but like that is, that is baller. And, uh, and, you know, Byron was an operator uh, with Trigo before he went into BVP. And so, you know, he's seen a lot of this stuff before. And so his portfolio is just amazing. So um, Tobias Lute from Shopify is another Canadian entrepreneur. Brilliant, brilliant product guy. I spent time with him. Um, I spent some time with Ryan Holmes at a Hootsuite. Nick Meta at Gainsight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're relatively similar stage. Um, he's just an awesome guy with tons and tons of experience. Um, you know, some of the senior folks at Salesforce, early sales leaders there. Uh, Dennis Cavalman is on our board. He was the CFO, COO at BlackBerry from employee 20 to like 20,000 and left in 2010 before the bomb dropped on them. But, you know, as you can imagine, just has an absolute ton of experience. I mean, the list kind of goes on and on. Adam Miller from Cornerstone. Every time I talk to them, I feel like, you know, our company has leapt a few light years ahead. And, and the one caution, you know, I think I'd like to make to entrepreneurs that are maybe listening to this is, you know, I think a lot of people spend a lot of time with companies that are maybe smaller than them or at the same stage. And yeah, you might be going through the same thing and it might feel like a really great peer group to lean on and complain to, but you're not necessarily going to learn things from them. And your closest five should be the ones that pull you along to greatness. And so, you know, I I think about Vidyard, our journey is just beginning compared to, you know, a box. And so what can I learn from those guys to apply to our business to get there faster than they did? On that note, I'd love to finish then on a, on a really interesting one, not in the schedule. How do you then, net, you know, a lot of founders email me, how do you network with VCs? How do you then network with the guys on the level above you who uh, are at different stages and, you know, are further along the journey? How's your kind of inward play with them? Yeah, so, you know, the interesting thing about VCs is it is their job to meet founders. And I think a lot of founders look at the VC community as this like really well protected group of gods that exist on this alternate plane that they, you know, only some people get access to. But it's important to note again that, you know, VCs rely on good entrepreneurs. And in the end of the day, they're in the business of, of making returns, not necessarily making investments. And so, you know, if, if you've got a great company with sound unit economics, you should be able to meet anyone with money anywhere in the world. And I think where things fall apart is people anticipate that because they have an idea and a co-founder and a product and a little bit of traction, you know, maybe they can go raise money. And I always encourage people to wait just a little bit longer and try to spend your time 
finding customers and users and growing your business rather than raising money. And that's something that I've always thought of. And so, you know, potentially that's core to our success in raising money. The other thing, you know, I always do is in meeting with people that are just a few steps ahead of you in terms of the path and developing their company is that if you meet with these people and show that you're coachable and eager and demonstrate that you have an interesting business that can either impact them or otherwise, you know, they will often be inclined to make an introduction to one of their investors because they feel like they might owe it to an investor and an investor did them a favor or they want to help the investor because they've got a good relationship and they know that the investor's job is ultimately to find balanced and, and good returns. And so, you know, what I would say is don't go out there asking for money. And I'm in Canada. Our headquarters is in Waterloo. I spend a bunch of time in Silicon Valley, but I've never actually created a fundraising deck. I've never actually been in a fundraising process because all I've ever been doing is trying to learn and trying to engage with people that I think can help my business succeed. And if you switch your mentality from the necessity of fundraising to the necessity of building a successful business, the money will find you and then you can focus more on building a successful business. And I think that's you know a pretty relevant piece of advice. Michael, uh, I've enjoyed this show probably more than I've enjoyed any other Sasta show, uh, which uh, is, is quite a thing because I've enjoyed them immensely. Seriously, uh, Chill the Fuck Out is one of my highlights, but seriously, so, so, <laughs> so grateful to you for giving up the time today uh, and absolutely amazing to hear the video journey. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate the chance. What a show that was with Michael, and I'd like to say a huge hand to him for giving up his time today for coming on the show. I'd like to thank Matt Garrett at Salesforce Ventures for making the introduction. Stephanie Palmieri at Soft Tech also provided questions along with Charles Hudson at Precursor. So grateful for that. I really do appreciate the support. Likewise, if you love the show and want to see more of us, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hdebbings with two Bs, or you can follow the main man Jason Lemkin at Sasta on Twitter at JasonLK. As always, it's been such a pleasure and I look very forward to bringing you Friday's episode.